1: Um, the barrio assemblies and these like you know, grassroots neighborhood organizations. A lot of these were sponsored by the church.
0: What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? Um, you're always Uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects. Welcome to The Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm Dean Detloff, a PhD student at the Institute for Christian Studies in Toronto.
1: And I'm Matt Bernico. I teach media studies at Greenville University in Greenville, Illinois.
0: This week we are going to talk about a wild book by a guy named James Bentley called Between Marx and Christ. Uh, It's kind of an interesting survey of a bunch of people, uh, some Christians, some Marxists, talking about the other side, if you will. Uh, Bentley goes through several of them, and it's a pretty interesting introduction. It's kind of like a view at a thousand feet of a bunch of different people trying to sort out this relationship. And we are just going to talk about a few of them, uh, some people that we've never really gotten a chance to kind of dig into on the podcast. So we're going to do a really quick, uh, quick dive into a few of them uh, following Bentley's lead. But before we get there, uh, Matt, I understand you've been again, once again, in the Reddit minds.
1: Yeah, I think mining the depths of uh, our Christianity on Reddit is one of my spiritual gifts. Uh, some people get healing, some people can speak in tongues, uh, but me, I just find the good posts on Reddit.
0: It takes all kinds. The foot can't say to the eye, I don't need you. <laughs>
1: yeah, exactly. Um,
0: <laughs>
1: I think in this metaphor, I am definitely the butt, though. Um, <laughs> all right, real I mean, someone's got to do it, and I guess it's me. It's a dirty right. job. So here it is, Dean. Um, you, an expert and um, well-educated Christian, here's a question yeah, yeah, that yeah. only you can answer.
0: I'm ready. Um, I've got my bow tie tightened.
1: <laughs> Good. Okay. So here it is. It's a little bit of a tricky one uh, to read. So just you know, do your best. Me too, <laughs> <Okay>. I guess. <laughs> if the universe turned out to be a simulation and mm. God, a programmer, mm. one step up with Jesus as his avatar. I'm not sure what the, what one step up does in this, in this <laughs> sense, but it's there. So, okay, hang on. God's a programmer. Yeah,
0: yeah. Jesus, yeah.
1: Jesus is his avatar. Mm-hmm. Okay, but yeah, I've seen Tron. I'm following. <laughs> every other part of the Bible was accurate. Would you still be happy about your faith? <laughs>
0: <laughs> huh. That's a really good question. So it's a complicated you know, question because really, yeah, it what is. it's
1: what it's saying here is. If uh, the, with, if all of reality was actually just God programming something and Jesus was his avatar, mm-hmm. but everything else is normal for us, would you still be mm-hmm. okay with that? And, yeah, yeah, I mean, obviously, yes. I mean, I, would, I think I'd be more happy to know that God is a gamer.
0: <laughs> yeah, uh, it'd be nice to know that God is a gamer. It'd also be really kind of comforting to know that God is such a terrible programmer. Uh, <laughs> just cannot get his program to run the way that the Bible says it ought to run. Just a
1: lot of goofy stuff going on here.
0: Lots of goofy stuff. I feel like it would be it would be nice to know that the blueprint for uh like God had given us the blueprint for how everything's supposed to go. We've got the Windows uh ninety eight manual here for the world itself. Uh but nevertheless, um just like Windows ninety eight is a piece of piece of trash. <laughs> <laughs>
1: okay, great. Thanks. That question's answered. Dean, can you do another one?
0: I think so. I've uh yeah, that one just warmed me up, so Okay, so this
1: one is, uh, it's easier and I think a little bit more uh, thoughtful. All right. I actually want there to be a tiny bit of optional pain in heaven. That's the (laughs) name of the post.
0: BDSM afterlife, all right?
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Um, Okay, so sometimes pain can actually be good. (laughs) Uh, This isn't going where you think it is. One of the fun, one of the fun things about paintball is feeling a little sting when you get shot. I hope that this minor pain can still exist in heaven. Also, one of the fun things about skiing is feeling the cold on your face, and even though it kind of hurts, it still feels amazing. It'd be cool if you could enable slight pain in heaven just for these types of experiences. Obviously, there'd be no bullet wound pain or migraines or anything, though. So, Dean, what do you
0: think? Uh,
1: can there can you enable pain in heaven? Uh, yeah, I really.
0: I'm really comforted by the idea that there would be no bullet bullet wound pain, but still potentially bullet wounds. That's good to know.
1: <laughs> yeah, because I mean would heaven be heaven if you couldn't shoot people indiscriminately and not yeah, I be mean, in trouble for it?
0: Here's the question though. Why would you want to play paintball if you can just shoot each other and no pain at all? I guess I guess the trade-off is do you want a little bit of pain because then it's paintball? Do you want no pain because then it's actual guns?
1: That's right. So in uh, in this one, uh, so I mean heaven in this in this uh, question uh mm-hmm. god the programmer it's like a sort of sandbox <laughs> mode it's the <laughs> yeah, it's the yeah. gary's the gary's world of uh of our universe yeah, right, right, um, and you have
0: the option of uh, of hacking the mainframe and giving yourself pain receptors.
1: <laughs> that's right. I do like how. Um, so at the first, at first, I read the first few lines. You're know, like, "Oh, this is about a-, a sexual thing in heaven, right?" But actually, it's just about somebody wanting to play paintball in heaven, and that's pretty sweet. <laughs> I can get behind that. That's definitely those are,
0: a- the, those are the two paths of thirteen year olds on our Christianity. I think <laughs> that's
1: right. Uh, weird horny kids, or also paintball. <laughs>
0: that's right uh yeah our christianity is just two kinds of posts horny kids asking if they're allowed to be horny or uh paintball kids who are horny for paintball asking if that's allowed it's horny that's, all the way down
1: that's true um uh horny for paintball is the type of chasteness though that christian uh young men ought to uh <laughs> ought to strive for uh on that point i got one more for you here uh, yeah yeah and i think it's a really good one uh, i think i think a lot of our listeners um could probably uh use some help with this one so this post is called men's group
0: material. Mm-hmm.
1: Hey, family. <laughs> person post on Reddit.com. Uh, seems
0: misposted. <laughs> you to send this as an email to <laughs> his mom. Should have gone to the group text, but it's yeah. fine.
1: Right. Hey, family. I just recently launched a men's group in my church. We are watching the Authentic Manhood series, which is awesome, but looking for other like <laughs> material. If you have one experience or two heard great things about it, so those are the two qualifications. So anyways, <laughs> I would love to hear what you are doing in your men's group. So Dean, what are you doing in your men's group? And like, what oh my kind gosh. of suggestions would you give to somebody else?
0: Oh boy. It's been so long since I've been a part of a men's group outside of this podcast, which I'm so sorry <laughs> to say. Uh, oh no. it's, it's too often. Too often the men's group uh, tragedy <laughs> has struck in again. Um, I guess this is turning into confession, but uh, gosh i have to admit i feel stumped i can't think of a good <laughs> good men's group material that isn't uh arnold schwarzenegger movies but like crying the whole time i feel like that might be a healthy exercise
1: that's good what just about, like, like, like allowing
0: yourself the emotional space to really be affected by action movies
1: i think that's good a good place to start but what about just like looking at pictures of fidel's beard with other men it's pretty good
0: <laughs> yeah that would be fine um Oh, be, hey, wait. What about
1: good. what about just being horny for paintball as a men's group activity?
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Feeling the pain and, and just really appreciating it for what it is.
1: Yeah. Oh, boy. Um, hey, some of the comments to this one are really troubling, and I think that men's <laughs> groups are probably a bad idea. Um, yeah, I think you're right. There's something that someone is suggesting called Every Man a Warrior, and I don't oh, like no. whatever that is. I, don't, I hate it. I'm against it. We've tried
0: it. that so many times, and there were like two very big wars about it every man a warrior is bad (laughs) actually every man a warrior except my grandfather got out of world war ii because he had four sons so every man a warrior unless you have too many men
1: every man a warrior but only in heaven and only with paintballs and they only hurt just a little bit
0: (laughs) yeah i think you get
1: behind that that's my speed um, so let's talk about instead of these things um, when every man was not a warrior, um, but they would soon be. Nineteenth uh, century German history.
0: <laughs> yeah, solid, solid, horrifying uh, segue there.
1: <laughs> yeah, I really did it. Um, so, like uh, Dean said at the top of the episode, we're reading Between Marx and Christ by James Bentley. It's a pretty weird book. In the sense that it's about a very specific period of time and about a very specific dialogue between a bunch of people Um, so overall you could say this book is um i mean it's between the 19th and 20th century so pretty narrow um but uh, a large swath of time to do a history of Um, it's primarily about you know um, the ways that theologians dealt with the um, rising interest in socialism amongst the working class in germany Uh, In the book, Bentley uses the phrase social question, like, you know, how are these theologians going to deal with the social question, which is how are they going to deal with people being interested in socialism? Um, And in that, I think there are a lot of interesting characters, a lot of very boring histories and um, some less boring and more interesting histories. But uh, all in all, we get kind of like a cool picture of some different answers to um, the ways that Christianity uh, might work Alongside of or with completely um, socialism or Marxism uh, in general, so if you've ever really wondered like what some German people had to say about <laughs> Christianity and Marxism, <laughs> do we have an episode very specifically for you?
0: <laughs> there are some others. There's a, a Czechoslovakian guy he gets in there. He's in the mix.
1: He's in the mix.
0: I think he's the only one who's not German. Is that right? It is. It is all about German-speaking Europe. So
1: it is. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's, all German. This is a
0: book. This is a book about German-speaking Europe and a Czechoslovakian guy.
1: <laughs> At least there's one woman. At least there's one female <laughs> voice in the entire book. <laughs> Thank God. Yeah. <laughs> uh,
0: yeah, it is a really interesting book, though. Um, I don't know, like. It's interesting for a number of reasons. One of them is that when we think about the relationship between Christianity and Marxism, usually I think, maybe I'm just speaking for myself, but uh, my immediate sort of uh, go-to point for that is not Europe at all, actually. Um, Yeah, totally. It tends to be, yeah, Latin America or other kind of third world contexts um but you know surprise uh, the place where marxism was born in europe and also uh the place where christianity has a really hegemonic um kind of you know hold on power which is in europe uh has a lot of things to say about that relationship um and i think that there are a lot of interesting things about bentley's way into this uh restricting it as he does to the geography and the the time is really good um he has some i think political commitments himself that sometimes make me a little bit i don't know not suspicious but that make me feel like i should like probably read more before i like take his word for it on a few things here and there but nevertheless he does a good job like introducing a lot of very very different kinds of people and and tying them together in sometimes ham fisted ways but mostly in a way that makes sense i think
1: yeah, totally. Um the book overall reminds me a little bit about what we were reading a few weeks ago when we um uh, were reading like the Liberation Theologians on The Fall of the Berlin Wall. There's like one yeah, of the pieces, yeah. I can't remember which one it was. I think it was the one that we didn't like. Um, but it was like um, you know, uh you might think that the the Christianities of Europe just had an inwardly sort of like uh contemplative religion, but actually we have our own sort of like ways of thinking about liberation. And I think in this mm-hmm. book at least um, you get a lot of those different ideas, so um, it's, it's cool. It's definitely not liberation theology, but some of it is very much so.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Especially totally.
1: uh, towards the end when we, we'll talk about Dorothy Zoela and uh, Ernesto Cardinal. So, yeah.
0: Yeah, well, we should say, so we picked three out of the several people who get profiled in this book. Each chapter is more or less a different kind of a story of a different person. Uh, so we're going to zero in on three. One, Christoph Blumhardt, who is a late 19th century and then into the 20th century character. Uh, Karl Bart, who sort of picks up where Blumhardt leads off. Uh, and then Dorothy Zuella, who picks up in some ways where Bart leads off, but uh, diverges in really importantly different ways. Um, so we'll talk about all three of them, I think also because they represent very different ways of engaging this relationship between Christianity and Marxism. Uh, Before we do though there are a couple interesting notes that Bentley offers about the history of this dialogue in general and just to set the stage here's one quote from the very beginning so he says the relations between Christians and Marxists in German speaking Europe between 1870 and 1970 could not have developed as they did from a mutual hostility to an intense dialogue without the remarkable social political and intellectual conditions prevailing in that part of the world. So the really unique and helpful point of departure for Bentley is to say this dialogue isn't just a bunch of people kind of sitting down and thinking about like the points that bring them together or put them apart, you know, in this abstract way. They're not just armchair exercises, but the dialogue actually gets motivated by the material conditions that surround these people. Um, And I think that's a really interesting point because it's one that forces Christians to think about Marxism because Marxism obviously becomes an increasingly more and more important thing on the world stage, but especially right next to Germany and then eventually within Germany itself in the 20th century, Um, but also to Marxists, right, that Christianity doesn't actually disappear When socialism comes on the world stage and so that Marxists too have to think through Christianity as a result of the material conditions that surround them. So I think that's a really neat and and unique and important kind of reminder for how uh, we ought to think about the relationship between these two parties, you know, not as a set of like abstract principles, but as uh, people who end up being forced to relate to one another because of what happens around them.
1: Yeah, also, just as a discourse, um, it's really interesting too because uh, at the very beginning in the 1870s, um, the Christian Marxist dialogue is bad. <laughs> it's like basically, <laughs> it's like it's incompatible, is kind of like what some of the early folks thought. Um, but in, you know, between 1870 and, ni- and 1970, it completely switches and changes um, and evolves in a pretty interesting way too. So um, it's cool because it actually made a difference. And. Um, that making a difference is important. Uh, the book actually begins um, in the first few pages of the book, at least it begins with this interesting uh, kind of like really like one line story about Lenin and kind of why uh, the Christian Marxist dialogue is really important. Um, so Bentley writes this shortly before his death, Lenin told a French Roman Catholic that communism and Catholicism offered two diverse, complete and inconfusible conceptions of human life. So, and then, if Lenin thinks that, I mean, I think a lot of other communists probably think that too. But this book kind of gives us a, a good, um, a good sketch of both the tensions, but also of the ways that these two ideas work together. Um, it, the book is actually just like one big like, N-uh to Lenin. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah, you can tell that uh, Bentley has kind of a Trotskyist axe to grind. I think actually against yeah. the USSR generally. Um, yeah, but that's fine.
1: <laughs> yeah, whatever. Yeah. It's actually not fine, but it's actually okay.
0: In this case. <laughs> it's fine insofar as uh, if a Leninist wrote this history, uh, that'd be great.
1: <laughs> yeah, totally. Get on it. Uh, <laughs> get, get on it, yeah. Um, okay, well, do you want to start and talk about Christoph Bloomhart?
0: Yeah. Um, Blumhart's a wild guy. He was a pastor... Uh, His dad was a pastor. They were involved in some really interesting pietist movements in Germany and a kind of revival moment uh, that had a lot to do with um, miraculous healings and setting up a short-lived utopic space in Germany. Um, Really, really crazy stuff. But Christoph Blumhardt, in addition to being a pietist, wasn't the kind of pietist who sort of retreats from life. He actually was driven a little bit further into average life um, and uh, had a lot of interesting kind of things to say about socialism as it was emerging in the SPD, etc. cetera. Um, and he himself was involved in, in politics. Uh, but here's how um, Bentley sort of sets the stage uh, before all this, which is kind of interesting um, and brings up a really fun place to talk about. <laughs> so <laughs> Bentley says this, the response of German Protestantism to the problems of the working classes was not ungenerous. Many church leaders were deeply concerned about poverty and distress, as well as about the political manifestations of the social question. In the revolutionary year of 1848, Pastor Johann Heinrich Wishern of Hamburg observed that the struggle between the propertyless and the propertied was completely unacceptable in a Christian nation. Wishern's first important practical response to the social question was to set up a school for vagrant boys called the Rough House, <laughs> love rough which house, I love. Yeah, love that that's Rough great. House. <laughs> uh, so this is kind of like setting the stage, anyway, for where Bloomheart and the rest of these figures are going to emerge. Um, there's some kind of weird ways of engaging the social question, but it's on people's radar, uh, and and also the idea of institutions are on people's radar too, as a way of you know solving the crisis or whatever.
1: Yeah, totally. Um, so Bentley uses all of this as kind of just like a social backdrop to explain where the heck Christoph Bloomhart comes from and like what other people are. You know, um, milling around the the Christian Marxist dialogue, I guess. Uh, so you got this guy Vishen, right? He starts this this place called the Rough House, which is really funny. <laughs> I want, is that where the word is that where the phrase roughhousing comes from? Like it must a really be, good right? Um, I don't know.
0: Who could say? I don't <laughs> know anything about the Rough House except for this one sentence.
1: Yeah. Um, uh, who knows how words are formed? Uh, <laughs> definitely not me. Uh, that, that's a you know what we're gonna put a pin in that one and come back to it. I'll uh, I'm gonna read the Wikipedia page about the Rough House next week and I'll come back yeah, yeah. and tell you. Well, um, but the Rough House was actually a pretty important place institutionally, um, and uh, Vishern is the guy that sets it up. And it's interesting because like that's his response to you know sort of the social ills of starting a you know not for profit <laughs> for lack of a <laughs> I mean anachron- anachronistically. Um, but just a place for all the vagrant boys to come hang out and, uh, I don't know, wrestle with each other or something. That's just the only thing I can imagine with a rough house. They're all just, (laughs) they're playing a real game, a really rough game of basketball. Um, and, uh, that's his answer is it's, it's a, a sort of a, a matter of personal ethics and not of politics. He's not like a, he's not like a Marxist. He's not a socialist. He's just a guy that's like, uh, yeah, we should probably do something about this. Um, and this is what he does. Um, but what happens next is kind of the the point. Out of the rough house, all these other figures kind of come. Whether they're people who actually like um, you know went to the rough house and stayed there and like went to school there or whatever, or if there are people who were um, just tangentially related in the same sort of social circles, um, different pastors and theologians kind of come up. And there are two that Bentley uses to kind of explain the different approaches to the uh, the social question or the Christian Marxist dialogue uh, during the um, these are revolutionary years of 1848. Um, it's revolutionary because that's when the manifesto was written, the Communist Manifesto. There's
0: <laughs> also like a, a lot of bourgeois revolutions going on.
1: Yeah. So that's why it was revolutionary. Anyways, <laughs> out of the rough house um, come these two other figures. Uh, so one of them is bloomhart, which we'll talk about in a second. But the, the first one that we need to talk about is called Adolf Stoker, or maybe Adolf Stoker. I don't know. I'm not good about German. Um, <laughs> it's hard. Um, yeah. So Stoker is kind of this interesting character because he's like the, um, I guess the bad guy in this short historical vignette, if there is such a thing as bad mm-hmm. guys. He's interested in socialism, which is cool, but he's also like strangely conservative. Um, so he, you know, is kind of a social democrat, but not even like a, a social democrat that would join the SPD. So instead, he um, starts this other party called the Christian Workers' Party. And uh, so that's a thing for a while, and then he disbands it and joins the actual conservatives. And then he is done with the conservatives because he gets kicked out because he's kind of a socialist. And then he goes back and tries to start the Christian Workers' Party again, and it doesn't really work out. And he kind of goes back and forth between these different institutions. Um, But uh, the thing that is relevant about Stoker in the Christian Marxist Dialogue is that Unlike Vischer, and he thinks that um, the only thing that will bring about social regeneration and make, uh, you know, Germany a better country are structural changes that are socialist in nature. Um, And not socialist in the Marxist sense, but socialist in the sense that, like, people should have good pensions, you know, that kind of socialism. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Also,
0: like, an anti-Semite. So some weird, like, shades of national socialism, I think, in some ways.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, a, a few of the early folks that show up in this chapter were anti-Semitic. Um, I don't know; it's a hard thing to, I guess, exactly parse out, but it's bad. Um, yeah, it's a it's a thing that was, uh, I guess, culturally culturally prevalent uh, at this point in time in Germany. So something to watch out for. Um, besides his anti-Semitism, though, um, Stoker was not a fan of Marxism because uh actually for some really strikingly similar reasons as um i don't know a lot of sort of conservatives uh that in it, it marxism is bad because it doesn't it doesn't breed sort of the solidarity of all people and all classes uh but instead it is uh, something that breeds like class hatred and um yeah i don't know that's like a pretty common thread that uh conservatives have to marxism but it's interesting that he's a socialist in a way but also anti-Marxist. Um, yeah, so in contrast to Stoker comes uh, comes Christoph Blumhardt, who is a way different figure. Um, like Dean said, he had these like weird kind of not weird, but these interesting <laughs> Pietistic movements. Whenever I read uh, the story about Blumhardt, I kind of got this like sort of charismatic vibe to him, even though you mm-hmm. know it's not charismaticism like we'd have in the United States. Um, Bloomhart's father, like, cast out demons and healed the sick. And there's, like, this, um, this, like, sort of, like, um, family creed, but also, like, big, huge part of Bloomhart's faith that is, you know, um, Jesus the victor is something that he, like, repeats over and over. Um... So, yeah, he's kind of an interesting character. Uh, He's coming out in the same times. He has lots of these, like, sort of charismatic e, according to me, impulses. um, And he takes those impulses and directs them uh, in a slightly different place than maybe his father. Um, He gets really interested in the social question. And uh, he was all about uh, finding, like, an eschatology that, uh, according to Bentley, would change heaven and earth. Um, and to do that, he joined the SPD, the German Social Democratic Party. Um, so joining the SPD was something that was like pretty scandalous at the time. It got him in a lot of trouble with people like Stoker. He was Stoker was not like a fan of that. Um, yeah, but then uh, so Bentley says about Bloomhart. Um, he says Bloomhart was now asserting that Jesus himself had been a socialist with proletarian disciples. His 19th-century followers could no longer minister to the poor solely on a one-to-one basis. What was needed was a corporate movement to improve people's lives. So, with bloomheart you see um, the same type of like uh, uh, you know urge for a structural answer to the poor that you'd see in Stoker, um, but with a radically different ethic—not uh, not one that's like about the unity of classes or something, but that Jesus is a socialist, that you should help people, and that the, you know, the disciples are pro- proletarian and all these kinds of ideas. So um, Blumhart is, uh, you know, he's like the, the OG socialist pastor. Um, it's pretty cool, I guess. Uh,
0: the John Thornton Jr. of the <laughs> late 19th century.
1: Yeah, that's right. Yeah.
0: Yeah, he's an interesting character, I think, for a lot of reasons. Um, but the two that always stick out to me is one that he's contemporaneous with Marx, uh, which is pretty crazy. Um, but secondly, that he has this way of applying, I mean, you referred to it as a charismaticism, which I think is is helpful for us today. Um, he has this way of applying this, uh, you know, hyper commitment to like the idea that the supernatural or the spiritual, however you want to put it, is really present here today, which in my own experience of people who are really committed to that kind of idea, lends to a really conservative, reactionary approach to the world or a kind of quietist, apolitical, or presumed apolitical approach to the world. Um, So, you know, people always think of, like, Jesus Camp documentaries or something like that. Um, But Bloomhart actually takes the idea that God having this healing energy actually means that you should... Uh, channel that energy in a socially meaningful way. And that leads him to the SPD in particular, which I think is a really, really fascinating choice, right? Like uh, it leads him not to like Stoker form a Christian version of socialism or something like that, uh, but to throw his lot in with other socialists and see what happens from there. So he finds, you know, Christian reasons to participate in an ostensibly non Christian uh, group that's trying to, to bring the kingdom on earth, uh, You could put it that way, at least in a theological register.
1: Yeah, I think that is a good way to put it. Bentley finishes up some of his thoughts on Bloomhart, saying uh, this, kind of echoing what you're saying there, actually. Bloomhart associated with social democrats not because he equated Marxism with Christianity, but rather because he saw Marxism as a demonstration of the fact that God's love truly extends to all people. Um, And I think this is a cool idea and actually one of the threads that runs through a lot of the Um, the folks in this book not just the ones that we'll talk about tonight but i think almost all of them that um they you know a a bunch of pastors in this book end up joining the spd or joining other parties or uh, participating in revolutionary struggles or whatever right um but they're doing it not because uh marxism is christianity but it's a place that they see um like you know it's a place that they see like uh, the kingdom of God working itself out or a place where people are actually working for um, the ideas that Jesus might have talked about. So it's a it's a cool way to think about the the relationship between Christianity and Marxism, that they're not the same. They're distinct, but um, a lot of like the things that Christianity wants are actually, you know, done in socialist uh, revolution.
0: Yeah, well, that's a good place to start talking about Karl bart anyway because uh bart too was a member of the spd and he was influenced by Blumhardt. his theology took a lot from Blumhardt, um mm-hmm. but as a member of the spd in the uh early 20th century and going into the mid-20th century he was around for some pretty heavy shake-ups in that party so the spd if you don't know famously you know this is the the party that was supposed to be the successor to um marx's call to communism right uh All all your revolutionary faves were into it, uh, Luxembourg, etc. There was a big debate within the party over reformism and revolution, and that became a whole thing. Uh, And it all came to a head during the First World War especially. I mean, there's lots of other stuff going on, but uh, at the First World War, lots of socialists around the world got together and said... All right, none of us are going to support this because it doesn't make sense for workers in one country to fight workers of a different country, right? The working people have no country, uh, as it says in the communist manifesto. Um but nevertheless the SPD decided to support its government anyway and uh, throw in with the uh with the first world war, which other socialists had called a capitalist um an imperialist war, uh, famously Lenin um called it that as well. So, Bart was not pumped about that decision as a member of the SPD and as a Christian. And uh, he had kind of a lot to say about it. And it really seemed to have rocked his world, as Bentley said. So, I'll say how Bart reacted to that and then just say something more general about Bart to kind of kick off this conversation. So, Bentley says this. In 1916, Bart was still convinced that the war and the capitalist order were the greatest atrocities of life. In 1914, both Christianity and social democracy had failed to combat these two evils. Bart therefore, committed himself to their mutual reformation. Although he held that both had shown themselves inadequate, Bart nevertheless convinced himself that the one could reform the other. Huh. So I think this is a wild pull quote for me because I've known a lot of Barthians in my life. I'm not a theologian myself. I've read like a handful of things from Karl Barth, but not really. Uh... And nowhere has anyone ever told me that Karl Barth was upset about the First World War, was a member of the SPD, and as we'll learn later, was also really into the Bolshevik Revolution. Uh, for people who don't know, I guess, who listen to this podcast, uh, and maybe don't have any background with theology, Karl Barth is like one of the most significant Protestants in the 20th century. I would probably say the most significant Protestant theologians. I mean, I, I don't know, but that's the impression that I get. I'm uh, even he less of a
1: theologian than you, and I think that's also the case.
0: <laughs> he like influences everybody else and yeah. uh you know he's like w- whether you love him or hate him you kind of have to deal with him. Um yeah. and the fact that this influential theologian was also uh not only into socialism but supported, you know, uh at least the nascent Bolshevik uh revolution is a extremely wild fact that I wish more Guardians uh would talk about.
1: <laughs> yeah. Uh wow.
0: but thanks to Bentley for getting on the table.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's a good one. Um I wish more Bardians would talk about this. I mean, maybe they do, and we're just not reading the right places, uh, which yeah, is kind that of could be. my suspicion from the beginning here, but I don't know. Um, on this point, though, uh, one of the things that comes out in this chapter that I thought was really interesting uh, was this. Um, Bentley says, one of Bard's later pupils... Uh, has suggested that the section of the commentary devoted to chapter 13 of Paul's epistle uh, to the Romans, uh, the commentary devoted to chapter 13 of Paul's epistles to the Romans was written in response to Lenin's state and revolution and is a commentary on that work as much as the words of the apostle. Um, so, Bardian's even holding out on us. <laughs> <laughs> What's up, man? Like, I want to know everything about this. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Yeah, that's exactly what I felt reading this passage as well. Uh, It's crazy. I went and looked up a bunch of references in the Epistle to the Romans. There are a couple of references to Lenin, and there's one reference to the White Army, which he says is bad, so good for you, Bart. That's that's the right take, by the way. Uh, But he doesn't really... like. I guess I would have to actually sit down and read it (laughs) to decide whether or not this uh, judgment of Barth's later people is correct. Um, But nevertheless, it's probably very interesting to read. Romans 13 is the, the famous chapter in that epistle that deals with the state, right? And what the Christian's relation to the state ought to be like. And Lenin's State, and Revolution is clearly about how you know Marxists should think about the state. So reading those two things together, if nothing else, would probably be extremely illuminating. Just given Bart's own kind of proximity to all of that, I, I like in a million years if no one told me to do that, I would never have thought to do it.
1: Right. Um, and if if I remember correctly, uh, this is this is like the young Bart though, right? This is not the right. This is not the older Bart who's kind of an
0: anti-communist. He is, but like he isn't like he's i would say he's not a communist but he's not anti-communist that's the impression i get
1: yeah that's probably a good way of putting it there's a a kind of an interesting um complication uh in bentley's book and bentley writes in 1950 bart wrote anyone who does not want communism and none of us do (laughs) should take (laughs) socialism seriously Nevertheless, he considered anti communism as a matter of principle and evil even greater than communism itself. Okay. Right. <laughs> Which is a really funny turn of like turn of phrase. Okay, so if uh no one wants communism, according to Bart. So for that reason, you should be a socialist. <laughs> <laughs> and uh anti communism is actually worse than communism is though. So okay, I get it. <laughs> I mean I get what he's saying. He's uh I mean, I disagree with him, but still I get what he's saying.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like a defensible position. Uh, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Well, he goes on to say a little bit more, though. Bentley does kind of trying to explain how some of these things get put together. And I think Bentley tries to be pretty fair in this chapter to pulling out like Bart's sympathies toward the Soviet Union and also trying to walk them back. Like you can see Bentley himself is like struggling to do justice to both sides of Bart and. Again, not a Bart scholar, but the impression that I get is that this is maybe a good representative uh, or good representation of, of the conflicts in Bart's own political um, journey. But anyway, here's a, a kind of long quote, but a really good one uh, where Bentley dramatizes this. So he says, um, a commentator on Bart observes that the function of the dictatorship of the proletariat as expounded by Lenin is replaced in Bart's commentary by the notion of the revolutionary activity of God. Who Bart considered was even more radical than Lenin in his call for an upheaval in society. Yet Bart insisted the revolutionary God not only goes further than all human revolutions, but also discloses the evil in them. Nonetheless, Bart made clear his belief that Christians in politics ought to stand on the extreme left. Marxist dogma, he said, was dying, but he believed it would blaze anew when the socialist church would be raised from the dead in a <laughs> socialist world.
1: All right. Uh,
0: Yeah. So, I mean, that paragraph itself just pulls both of these uh, tensions out, I think. Uh, You know, on the one hand, he wants to be like more revolutionary than the revolutionaries. Uh, right. But on the other hand, he, he's also like kind of committed to the you know the real material practice of revolution. And I think what I appreciate about that is like so many progressive Christians that I know who are also uh, take themselves more, to be more like,
1: revolutionary than revolutionaries. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And like that kind of rhetoric drives me crazy because I'm like, but what are you even talking about though? Like, yeah. <laughs> do you think that like capitalists should own businesses or workers should own businesses? That's the question <laughs> I'm interested in. And uh, <laughs> like, it seems to me like Bart is actually granting that point and then saying something more and then I'm like a little bit more willing to kind of hear it I guess
1: (laughs) I think that Jesus should own the businesses
0: (laughs) (laughs) that's right uh, the ultimate boss (laughs)
1: Jesus is the ultimate he owns the businesses of our hearts (laughs)
0: <laughs> Lord of lords, King of kings, Boss of bosses.
1: <laughs> That's the men's men's group material that we all need. Is, uh, <laughs> Jesus it. is our boss, the boss of our heart.
0: <laughs> no, I feel like I would I would give Bart credit for at least probably saying Jesus will be like the worker of workers.
1: <laughs> okay, fair
0: enough. <laughs> the Soviet among Soviets. <laughs>
1: um. So post World War One, um, after the rise of the Nazis, um, Bentley explains that Barth uh, returned to Switzerland and he was. Um, more politically committed, I think, probably than when he left. Um, He became a member of the Swiss Soviet Union Society. Okay, that's cool. (laughs) Cool Cool BART facts here. Um, (laughs) Asserting that he had long distressed the fear of Bolshevism and communism rampant in his native land. Um, So here he is. This is the BART that I love, Um, the Swiss Soviet Union Society BART. (laughs)
0: <laughs> is there like yeah, a number I, mean, I can
1: text where i get more bart facts about how he's like into <laughs> bolshevism
0: <laughs> yeah it's a uh, it's like the garfield eats app uh, but you get pizzas <laughs> in the shape of bart's face and also some facts about bolshevism
1: text 1917 um, to get more bart facts about socialism <laughs>
0: that's it uh yeah i mean i think what's interesting about this anecdote though is like soviet union societies were present around the world as kind of solidarity organizations and like bart didn't have to join it right um even in switzerland he could have found plenty of other socialists who weren't into defending the soviet union uh but the fact that he chose to to make a commitment like that i think is really significant um bentley like goes out of his way to to talk at one point about how Bart was like vehemently opposed to equating the Soviet Union and Nazi Germany after the war Hmm. and uh, would like attack people for like putting even Stalin in the same camp as like Hitler or Goebbels or whoever. Um, I think that's actually really interesting, right? That Bart, you know he was like politically committed enough to even wade through the complicated nuances. Uh, Bentley doesn't think he's being very nuanced, but my guess is uh, that might betray more of Bentley's position than Bart's, but who knows?
1: (laughs) Yeah, I think so. Um, Well, uh, next uh, in the long slew of Bart facts that Bentley gives us, uh, Bentley says, even if state socialism in Eastern Europe had not brought such exploitation, of the weak by the strong to an end, it did not, in his opinion, fall to the churches of the West to point this out as their primary task. Christianity in the West, he insisted, has its main work cut out to comprehend the disorder in this decisive form still current in the West, to remember and assert the command of God in the face of this form and keep to the left in opposition to its champions. Um, Yeah, this is it. Um, Christians in the West, pay attention to what you're doing in your own country. (laughs) (laughs)
0: um yeah i think that's good too because christians have a tendency to be anti-communists because they follow the sort of typical liberal rhetoric about well did you hear what was going on in that communist country yeah exactly uh, you know bart's pulling a real like well take the plank out of your own eye first kind of move here
1: yeah thanks thanks bart
0: a real biblical guy that bart (laughs) i just keep
1: (laughs) now i'm just thinking about bart simpson again and damnation.
0: (laughs) yeah that's right don't come in (laughs) um so uh before we move on to zoela i wanted to talk about one last thing that um bentley pulls out about bart here so again going back to that thing where bart doesn't really want to equate the soviet union and uh, nazi germany bentley says that bart asserted what has been tackled in soviet russia albeit with very dirty and bloody hands and in a way that rightly shocks us is after all a constructive idea this is bart talking by the way the solution of a problem which is a serious and burning problem for us as well in which we with our clean hands have not yet tackled anything like energetically enough the social problem. Uh, And I like that as well, right? Because, and maybe this speaks back to Bart being not a communist, but not necessarily anti-communist. Like, he he has reasons to not like things in the Soviet Union I, you know presumably Bart is not a fan of the Red Terror for example and you know rightly shocked by it like I probably would be too
1: yeah, uh, at that,
0: that time in history <laughs> um, but uh, like the idea that Bart is driving home here is that well it's really easy to criticize a bunch of people who actually like did something yeah, exactly. um, when you didn't do anything and yeah, ex- I think that's, that's you know great
1: yeah I mean that's right back to the Christians in the West like figure your own problems out
0: yeah. Get your house in order.
1: Get your house in order. Because the Bartman's coming for you.
0: <laughs> Bartman is coming. The uh, Bartman, not not as lazy as you might think. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, man. Tell those Christians in the West to eat his shorts. Um, <laughs> uh, okay. <laughs> so there's a lot of other stuff going on in this book, too, between um and... <laughs> Bart and Zoella, who we're about to talk about. Um, there's some good stuff in here about Ernst Bloch, that's kind of interesting. You get some, some stuff about Karl Kotsky, which I was very into as well. Uh, and uh, Moltmann's in here, all your favorite, hard to pronounce German names. Um, <laughs> they're all here. The gang is all here. But uh, the person we decided to kind of uh, end on is Dorothy Zoella uh, because uh, she is the best of them all. <laughs> I don't know if that's exactly true, um, but she is extremely cool. Um, We've talked to her about her a few times uh, in the past, I think, when we've talked about religious socialism and the DSA and also Christians for Socialism. She was um, kind of in some of the same milieus as as those places in America. Um, But Dorothy Zoela is so cool. Um, She has a really interesting and pretty nuanced political theology, um, and she... Also, I guess, had a pretty interesting relationship with our dude Ernesto Cardinal in Nicaragua. So she's got like a lot of interesting stuff going on. Um, there's probably more interesting stuff with Dorothy Zuella that we can actually talk about in this very short period of time. Um, but we'll talk about some of it right now. OK. So Bentley says that Dorothy Zuella was one of the more well-known theologians of like the German Christian Marxist scene. Like she was kind of like a more public type of theologian. Zuela's theology and politics are a really interconnected matter. She thinks that um, ultimately bad theology would also lead to bad politics. Um, so those two things have to be kind of in line with one another and make sense together or else you're going to have a weird a weird politics. Um, bad theology for Zuela, uh was mostly Karl Barth uh, and also <laughs> uh, uh, one of Barth's students. Helmut Goldwitzer, who is. Um, who we've
0: talked about before on the yeah, podcast.
1: Yeah, exactly. Who was a socialist. Um, but uh, Dorothy Zoella thought he could be a better socialist, I guess. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> it's kind of a bummer because, it, I mean, uh, Travis's book is so cool because you get to know all about this, like, kind of marginal figure from, uh, like, German theology, who was also a, sol- a socialist. Having read Our God Loves Justice, but then reading this, it's kind of these, like, weird, differing stories where in Travis's book, it's like, um, Goldwitzer is, this, like, Really cool theologian he's a socialist and everything is like awesome about him but like in this book in Bentley's book it's all just like uh Helmut Goldwitzer is like the uh like the dweeb in the class and Dorothy's way that's like <laughs> yeah. way cooler than him yeah <laughs> she's just got constantly like destroying him or whatever um I mean that's probably not how it actually was but that's just the way it sounds it sounds to me um okay So uh, Dorothy Zoela thought politics and theology had to be kind of in line and um, in step with one another or else you'd have a weird politics. Um, So there's like probably a few places we could start like an explanation of Zoela's political theology. Um, But the place that Bentley starts is with some of her ideas about Christianity and suffering. And it's pretty interesting, I think, to say the least. Um, Christians, Zoela insisted, must first abolish their own traditional masochism. Okay, so Zoela has a lot to say about suffering and the Christian response to suffering. Zoela thought that suffering wasn't just something that Christians ought to bear. Um, It was something that uh, you shouldn't have to endure, like it's something that shouldn't have to happen. Uh, Or if it is happening, um, there is a proper response, and that proper response is to uh, end that suffering. Uh, So this is a quote that Bentley um, attributes to Zoela. Uh, so he says that the proper Christian response to suffering is identical to the response advocated by Karl Marx to work for its abolition politically, if necessary, as well as personally. So right from the bat, uh, has this really, uh, different understanding, I think, of Christianity. Um, you you know, you might think about people like Luther who is, you know, has a lot to say about suffering and like, there's a lot of ideas within Christianity, um, both aesthetically and kind of spiritually, uh, about suffering and kind of like the ways that the the Christian's place is kind of to like just to bear that suffering. But Zuela has a pretty different understanding, right? Uh, if you're suffering, this is something that you should overcome um, and work towards abolition. Uh, it's pretty wild. I don't know, Dean. Do you have anything that you want to say about Zuela?
0: <laughs> yeah, it is really wild. I mean, we should probably talk a little bit more about that connection between bad theology and bad politics because. It's kind of a weird thing to hear right after hearing about someone like Bart, for example, right, yeah. where we talked about how he, you know, wasn't a communist, but had like some pretty like reasonable and, you know, all things considered like good politics, uh, at least uh, definitely in comparison to all the Bartians I'm familiar with myself. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'll say that much. Uh, <laughs> and the same with Golwitzer, right? We did this whole episode with Travis making about Golwitzer, and uh, he also had some some interesting politics, too um and so the question is well what's the what's the better theology uh that would lead to a better politics and and what is that politics and bentley tries to bring that out so uh people might be aware of this movement called death of god theology that happened in the 60s mostly and then continued on um there are a lot of famous people in the u.s who are associated with it but not only uh, and the idea was to take the the death of God seriously um, as a kind of real like theological opinion uh, and to say that, yeah, God is like dead and we have to sort of deal with like the consequences of it. And Dorothy Zoella has like a lot of really interesting takes on that reality. And it leads her to be even more of a radical socialist. Uh, and she also criticizes Bart and Golditzer, uh for being kind of like too attached to the idea of God is one way of looking at it. Um, but ironically, she doesn't feel the same way about people like Ernesto Cardinal, who's also very into God. But in any case, uh, she summarizes everything like this. Um, so she says the precise point, precise point at issue uh, for Zoella arose over Golvitzer's contention that man derives meaning ultimately not from himself, but solely from God. The central point of the disagreement she defined thus. So this is her speaking. So long as Golvitzer, like all Bardians, holds fast to the self-sufficiency of God, for so long must they be attacked as theists. They erect as the measure of greatness and perfection something that in fact serves to bring it into contempt. They are not ashamed to praise independence and self-sufficiency as in some sense godly, although it is precisely here that the projection of the capitalist, whose highest goal is autonomy, has taken hold. They remain bourgeois in that they cannot radically conceive of God as solidarity. Instead, they demand in power and certainty of victory more than the strength of the weak, whose sole strength is that they belong to God. Uh, And that's the end of the quote. And she goes on to, uh, well, Bentley goes on to explain how her kind of death of God theology leads her to other sort of third world solidarity movements. Um, And I think it's interesting worth it's like worth putting that, pointing that out because on the one hand, I think Zoella is actually not being completely fair in her critique, at least there of Bart and Golvitzer. They both have kind of interesting things to say about freedom, especially, which is not exactly bourgeois, even if it isn't, you know, exactly what she's after. Uh, But nevertheless, as a foil, it allows her to build an even deeper political connection or extension of her own theology, uh, which led her to affirm third world liberation movements in a much more kind of unambiguous way or unhesitating way than did Golvitzer, even though he had his own kind of relationship to to third world movements as well. So that's at least kind of how she sees this difference between bad theology, and bad politics. Um, she wants to like completely radicalize and then uh, radicalize even further. <laughs> what has already been done by people like Bart and Golvitzer.
1: Yeah, cool. Um, that's a, I'm glad that you brought up the death of God note and read the extra stuff there about Golditzer Cause I think that makes a lot more sense that way. Um, quick note uh, back at the 100th episode, somebody asked about death of God theology and socialism. And we were like, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, what we right. su- that's what we sound like, by the way. Um, <laughs> uh, but here we go. Here's someone who knows about death of God theology and socialism, uh, and her name is Dorothy Suela. So uh, if you're still listening and you're not put <laughs> off by our uh, dumb, unknowing answer in episode 100, this is someone you should research. Um, if you're out there thinking, well, uh, death of God theology means she's probably not a Christian or something like that, I think that you should think again. Um, (laughs) because it's actually pretty complicated, or the way that she thinks about God is pretty complicated. It's kind of like this, um, I don't know, to me it feels less like death of God than it does like sort of a Tillichian kind of theology, but I think that's because my understanding of death of God theology is completely colored by Zizek, and he didn't exist yet, so good for her. Um, But uh, (laughs) I think one way that she parses out kind of like what this means for her is is like this. This is Bentley quoting Swele. God is not above human parties and classes. He is involved. He is partisan. He is always on the side of the oppressed and he exists only at the point where the oppressed take action. So this is, I guess what the death of God theology means for Zoela. Not like, um, not like, I mean, there are theological ramifications for sure. Um, but the point here is that like, uh, God exists, but God like works through people is kind of like the, the big idea, I suppose. But it's a very specific working through people, um, he exists only at the point where the oppressed take action is a pretty interesting place to locate God. Like specifically.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. And to say that, or to imply, I guess, that God's not outside of that situation.
1: Yeah. Um it I mean, I don't know if they, I don't know enough about theology to probably refute refute that, but it makes me feel kind of uncomfortable, but also, I don't know, I guess okay. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I feel the same way. Uh I uh yeah, I'm not ready to give up on God, I guess. I like um, I like regular
1: but, God, but also that God too. <laughs>
0: yeah. Yeah, that's right. Um <laughs> uh, so Bentley also goes on to say some interesting things about her Christology, where she says, he says, uh did not attempt to maintain that Jesus sketched out political objectives for present-day Christians to follow, or even that a precise political program could be deduced from his teachings. She distinguished discipleship from mere imitation of the historically ascertainable words and deeds of Jesus. Discipleship, she wrote, is not a question of describing his actual conduct, but of recognizing the tendency of his conduct and then bringing about new goals in anew in our society. Uh, and I think that is probably a point worth thinking about. The imitation of Christ is like a long-standing Christian tradition, and she's trying to say something a little bit different, uh, that you shouldn't be kind of you know devoted to christ in a way that stops you from thinking beyond it uh when i hear this kind of uh tendency mentioned um by zoella but also by others i always think of that line that jesus says like you'll do greater things than i yeah um and like he or she is kind of i think encouraging us in that direction you know to think of like all right jesus doesn't have a political program but like maybe we need to make one up (laughs) maybe that's one of the greater (laughs) things that we can do Um, and yeah, I mean, it's, it's an empowering kind of thought and it also turns some relationships on their head, I think, in terms of how we think of our own relationship to, to Jesus and politics alike.
1: Yeah, I agree. I mean, okay. Like the imitation of Christ is an idea that is important to me as well. (laughs) Yeah. Um, but I I mean, I don't know. I don't know why you couldn't just do both. You can imitate Christ and also do more things than Jesus did uh, or whatever. talk about it because, you know, Jesus lived a long time ago and we live right now. Um, I also like this too, just because of the use of the word discipleship, I think is a really, <laughs> is a good, uh, it's a good rhetorical strategy for this exact moment in evangelicalism. Yeah, uh, I agree. So youth pastors out there, uh, get in on this discipleship. <laughs> <laughs> this is this is good content for your men's group, for your youth group, for your women's group, whatever you got going on here. Uh, just, I mean, you could you could go to your pastor or the spiritual director of your campus or whatever and be like, listen, I want to do discipleship, and then this is what you mean, okay. but they wouldn't know, and you could do communism, so check that out. Yeah,
0: it's a good backdoor.
1: Just a little suggestion from me to you on this one.
0: <laughs> I dig it.
1: Uh, yeah, so... Uh, Dean, uh, before you mentioned some connections she had to um, third world Christians and third world countries and um, basically anyone who is the political enemy of America, (laughs) Um, this is part that uh, that like this is kind of like turn, I guess, that Bentley um, takes kind of three fourths way through the chapter where he's kind of talking about Zoela's increasing, um, I guess, radicalness. Uh, So Bentley says this increasingly she began to side with the political enemies of America. During the early 1970s, she claimed to have discerned in North Vietnam, the socialism of which we dreamt, and especially as revealed in the North Vietnamese treatments of the former cabinet ministers and prostitutes, the capital of human dignity, is what she called it. Um, So this is pretty interesting. Again, like uh, it's (laughs) I mean, this is like a different uh, a a little bit of a different time period than, you know, Bart and the Bolsheviks. But this is uh, actually kind of a similar thing. Uh, You know, uh, Bart was into the Bolsheviks and uh, the Soviet Union Society and Zuela has this thing for North Vietnam. And okay, Um, but uh, North Vietnam is not the only place or Vietnam, as we call it uh, today. (laughs) It's not the only place uh, that she's interested in. Uh, Zoeva had a really intre- uh, a really big interest in uh, Nicaragua as well, and she met up with uh, our long friend of the podcast who we've never met, uh, Ernesto Cardenal. <laughs> um, she, I, I, Bentley uh, mentions that she, uh, I guess, first met him uh, with Thomas Merton in uh, Kentucky, but she, I guess, went to Nicaragua and saw the revolution there what it looked like and there's like a lot of interesting kind of back and forth uh between the two it seems like it seems like they kind of um they were they had like a mutually reaffirming relationship where uh cardinal would do some like weird poetry and do say some cool stuff and make up uh new parts of the psalms and zoela would be like yeah this is great (laughs) Um.
0: (laughs) yeah she was a poet herself too so they both had a kind of poetic sensibility
1: right Yeah. um, But it's cool. It's a good connection. So um, she's not just in Vietnam, but also Nicaragua. She has these connections to real life revolutionary projects. I mean, I guess it makes sense, right? If your theology is that that's where God shows up, uh, you better show up to those places.
0: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Um, Well, we're coming around to the end here, uh, but maybe we could sort of close off thinking about this book as a whole, which has a lot more to it and even a lot more to the three people we talked about, obviously. Uh, but I think what's neat is Bentley does a good job of just exploring the Christian Marxist dialogue in a really specific um, time and place. And it, it allows you to track some some different like vantage points, I guess, on this conversation from some very different people. Uh, he concludes his own study saying that the 1968 events in Czechoslovakia, where the Soviet Union drove tanks into Czechoslovakia, were a really major stumbling block for the Christian Marxist dialogue in Europe, especially. Um, so the way he paints it, which whether this is true or not, I don't know. We'll leave it to the historians, I guess. But he paints that as a, a decisive sort of turning point that really shut the door on a lot of these conversations. But he says the dialogue continues elsewhere in, in Latin America and in other parts of the world. So he closes the book kind of on something of a sour note in Germany specifically, but then leaves this suggestive door open for... The dialogue that emerges in in the third world so in that sense zoela is kind of like on the right track um i don't know i think what's really valuable about this book is that it's a good introduction to these creative theologies and politics that are uh, that are happening in europe um even if bentley has kind of his own political commitments going on uh and it's really hard to find those kinds of studies that are looking at like the marxist dimensions of theology uh and at the same time the theological dimensions of marxists um so it's a really unique book despite some of its faults um I don't know what did you think Matt what are your kind of last takes
1: yeah it is a really unique book I I like the way that you put it a minute ago that like um so the the Christian Marxist dialogue was sort of closed off (laughs) after Czechoslovakia um which is not great but it opens up in different places like like Latin America um I guess what's interesting to me about the Christian Marxist dialogue is that like Um, I mean, kind of like we talked about a few weeks ago, right? Like, the fall of the Soviet Union doesn't mean that, like, socialism is over. Um, Any political situation doesn't sort of foreclose the future, I suppose. Um, And the Christian Marxist dialogue is the thing that keeps popping up, whether we like it or not. Even in 2019, when we're sort of, like, dominated Trumpism and all kinds of other bad stuff, um, the Christian Marxist dialogue is still at least important for us and, you know, like a thousand other people on the Internet. So um, I think that's a cool idea to keep in mind.
0: Yeah, I think so. That's a good note to end on. Very uh, <laughs> forward-looking note. Thanks for listening to the Magnificast. If you like what you heard, you can find us on patreoncom slash Magnificast and support us there. We've also got a podcast there behind the paywall called the Damnificast, where we're watching the TV show Damnation. Uh, it's a really great show about a strike in Iowa a farmer's strike and there's a Marxist pastor and there's all kinds of stuff going on and we talked to the creator of the show Tony Toast not long ago for this very podcast uh, so we encourage you to check that out you can also find us on social media on Twitter we're at The Magnificast uh, you can email us at themagnificast at gmail.com uh, send us all your hot takes and questions etc uh, let's see music as always is by Amori Armstrong and the Illogical Spoon and we'll see you next week Heaven come to earth, the be no
1: church we'll meet down by the riverside
0: there we'll swim with all
1: creation never get tired never bored don't worry someday there'll be no damn between us and our lord jackson
0: keep your hoods up keep your hoods up and you stay up late Jackson,
1: you keep your hoods up, Will you keep your hoods up.